Recording right. in progress. Okay, good good afternoon, everyone. And it is a, I'm sorry, I just want to be able to see everyone on the screen here. It is a great zuchos to be able to virtually be here with all of you. I'm sorry, it was my intention to be there with you in person. And I know that even my, my wife as well was looking forward to participating in some of the sessions. But uh, alas, Southwest Airlines had other plans for us. Baruch Hashem, and um, are you able to hear me all right? Yeah? Okay, wonderful. So I'm sorry that I can't be there with you in person, but at least Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, that we'll still be able to... We'll still be able, Amir Hashem, to learn together just uh, a little bit. So I, I want to thank uh, Aviva Fast for, for asking me, and, and of course, Sarah Walaski for asking me to share some Torah with all of you. It's a great source, and I understand that the theme of this, um, the theme of this retreat was one of renewal. I was looking at the schedule, which is really so beautiful, so amazing. You have learning, you have kickboxing, you have kayaking. It's quite, uh, quite an eclectic plethora of wonderful experiences. So truly beautiful. But I see that the theme really has been one of Chodeshvat, one of renewal, one of self-actualization, which is so profound and so amazing. And so I, I'd like to kind of continue on that theme a little bit. And maybe kind of bring that theme into our life relationships. So first of all, just a word about Tu Bishvat. Because again, Chodeshvat in general is a very holy month. Every month is a holy month. But Tu Bishvat, of course, is really the pinnacle of the month of Shvat, the 15th day of Shvat. And there's so much mysticism and there's so many esoteric aspects to this day. But yet, when one drills down to the sources, so one often finds that at the end of the day, Tu Bishvat is a technical day. Tu B'Shvat is really a legal day. The 15th of Shvat, when one looks in rabbinic literature, the Mishnah and the Gemara, is not a day of great mysticism, but without getting into all the technicalities, it's actually a day that has ramifications for Trumas and Maestros, for tithing. The halacha is, the law is, that one is not permitted to tithe one year's produce from another year's produce. So in order to know which produce belongs to which cohort, you need a cutoff date. The cutoff date for produce is Tu B'Shvat. Is Tu B'Shvat. So where does Tu B'Shvat get all of its esoteric meaning from? So the truth is, this is from another verse in the Torah. Pasuk in the Torah says, this is in Dvarim, and I'm sure some of the things that I'm going to say today you've probably heard over the last couple of days of sessions. But there is a beautiful Pasuk. The Pasuk in Dvarim speaks about, again, actually the laws of war. But it has a Pasuk in there, Kia Adam Eitz Hasodeh. Man is like a tree of the field. Man is like a tree of the field. And that, of course, symbolism is so profound because man is very much like a tree. Man has roots. We all come from somewhere. We all come, each of us is a tree. Each of us is an eight. We all come from somewhere. Those roots are our parents. Those roots are our grandparents. Those roots are the generations who came before us, people who we never knew, never will know. And then, of course, there's the tree. The tree is me. I'm the trunk. I'm, I, I create a strong sense of self. But of course, just being a trunk isn't enough. I have to produce branches. The branches represent growth. And hopefully, the branches produce fruit. Fruit can be in the form of biological offspring. But fruit could also be in the form of spiritual offspring. You'll ask, what are spiritual offspring? Those are my mitzvahs. Those are my good deeds. Those are my chasadim. Those are my acts. Those are the things that I produce. Those are the things that I create 
in order to make the world a little bit better. And herein lies the profundity of Tu B'Shvat for us. Because as the physical world is renewing, you know, you're, you're in Florida, Baruch Hashem. I'm saying physical world is renewing. I'm sitting in my study, looking out my, looking out my window. There's snow on the ground. The trees are bare. But yet we know that nature is beginning to renew. Not as much in diaspora, but more in Eretz Yisrael. And as nature begins to renew, as the trees of the field begin to renew, as the sap rises up inside of each of them, there's a personalistic renewal that is occurring as well. Each of us have the ability to renew. Each of us have the ability to remake ourselves. Each of us has the ability to do things better, to do things differently, maybe to stop doing some things, to start doing other things. And herein lies the profundity of Tu B'Shvat for us. So there's legal Tu B'Shvat, which has to do again with the laws of tithing. And then this personalistic renewal Tu B'Shvat, which I'm a tree, Kia Adam the man is like a tree of the field, and as the trees on the outside are renewing, this tree on the inside is trying to renew as well. But you know, I was thinking a little bit about this. That when you think about trees, when you think about trees, trees really look most beautiful when they stand alongside other trees. In other words, when you see one tree, it's very nice. But you know, if you ever like go somewhere, you know, you drive by by the mountains. So when you see a mountainside, if there's one tree, it looks very nice. But if it's like blanketed by trees, it looks so beautiful. The real power of a tree is not when it stands by itself. The real power of a tree is when it stands alongside other trees. And as such, if Tubi Shvat is the day, the month of Shvat is a month of personalistic renewal, then it's also an opportunity to renew and to really look at how we relate to other trees as well. What type of life relationships do we have? And do those, do those relationships need a little bit of tending? Do they need a little bit of gardening? Do they need a little bit of help? Do they need a little bit of chizuk, a little bit of bolstering? As my tree renews, it gives me the opportunity to look at how I relate to the trees around me as well. And so for the couple of minutes that I'm privileged to have with this incredible group, I want to speak a little bit about how we can build our life relationships. How can we make our relationships better? As I'm, again, as I'm bolstering my personal tree, how do I go ahead and make my relationships to the other trees around me a little bit more beautiful, a little bit stronger, a little holier, and a lot better? So I want to share with you today four different approaches to how we can go ahead, and they're, they're short, don't worry, four short approaches to how we can go ahead and bolster our relationships to the other trees, bolster our relation, bolster our, relation, our life relationships. Now, the truth is, what I'm going to share with you today, a lot of times these conversations when building relationships often take place like in the marital context, how to build a better marriage, how to relate to your spouse a little bit better. But what I've come to find with relationship advice is you could plug it in to any life relationship you want. You could plug it in. Sorry. You could plug it in ultimately to your marriage, but you could also plug it in to your parents, to your children, to your friends. You could plug it in. So the advice that we're going to discuss today is really applicable across the board, although sometimes the Lushan, the language I'll use, may be a little bit more marriage oriented. So the first piece of advice or the first approach 
to going ahead and building better relationships. Creating better relationships with the trees around us is number one, learn to see out of someone else's window. What does this mean? There's an incredible book called The Gift of Therapy. I think it's a must read. So The Gift of Therapy was written by Irving, Irving David Yalom. He's an 87-year-old Jewish-American existential psychiatrist who is a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Stanford University. So Dr. Yalom again wrote this book, wrote this book, The Gift of Therapy, and I want to share with you what he writes, a section which, which I found so profound. He describes a particular situation with a patient he was seeing, and I'll read it to you. Decades ago, I saw a patient with breast cancer who had throughout adolescence been locked in a long, bitter struggle with her naysaying father, yearning for some form of reconciliation for a new, fresh beginning to their relationship. She looked forward to her father's driving her to college, a time when she would be alone with him for several hours. But the long-anticipated trip proved a disaster. Her father behaved true to form by grousing at length about the ugly, garbage-littered creek by the side of the road. She, on the other hand, saw no litter whatsoever in the beautiful, rustic, unspoiled stream. She could find no way to respond to what she perceived as her grumpy father, and eventually lapsing into silence, they spent the remainder of the trip looking away from each other. Many years later, she made the same trip alone and was astounded to note that there were two streams, one on each side of the road. This time I was the driver, she said, she, she said sadly, and the stream I saw through my window on the driver's side was just as ugly and polluted as my father had described it. But by the time she had learned to look out her father's window, it was too late. Her father had passed away. And Dr. Yalom writes, look out the other's window. Try to see the world, he says, as your patient sees it. The woman who told me this story died a short time later, and I regret that I cannot tell her how useful her story has been to me over the years, to me, to my students, and my patients. One more piece, Dr. Yalom says, a happy life is one in which I could accept that me and my spouse look at the world from two distinct windows and thus see two different things. I cannot hope or expect that my spouse will start seeing the world through my window. What we must strive for is to respect the fact that other people see the world through other windows and try to listen and empathize with what they are seeing and experiencing, even if it is not what I am seeing and experiencing. And I think what Dr. Ayoloma is teaching us is such a profound idea that why so often do we encounter friction in our relationships? Because like the young woman in this story, we assume that what we see and how we see it is the way that everyone else is perceiving or should be perceiving the world, should be perceiving reality. And it's not true. All of us have our own unique window through which we see the world. 
You know, it's interesting because every parent knows this idea. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate an episode I'm sure has unfolded in every single home. Your child comes home and the child is sobbing and upset and crying. And again, you say, Mamala, Tatala, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And the child launches into this. They, he didn't want to play with me at recess. They didn't choose me for the team. Somebody, you know, I wanted this toy. And as a parent, often your first reaction, you know, you have to hold back the slide, you have to hold down the left because you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I had these problems, right? Somebody took your toy, you didn't get chosen at recess. But you know, every parent knows that although in the grand scheme of life, these are not problems, through your child's window, these are major life crises. When you don't get included in the game of jump rope at, at recess, this is as serious as world hunger. And if you're, and if, if you don't get to play with the toy that you want to, this is as serious as a pandemic. Every, every, and we know as a parent, I have to see things through my child's window. And it's amazing how sometimes that thing which is so obvious to us when we relate to our children is so foreign to us when we relate to other adults. So much relationship friction is caused by an inability or unwillingness to see outside the other's window. No two people see the world the same way. No two people perceive life the same way. And I would even tell you that even two people are in a relationship don't perceive that relationship in the same way. Successful life relationships require us to try to really understand how could I get a glimpse out of your window? I want to try to see the world through your eyes. Because if I see the world through your eyes, then I can understand where you're coming from. Then I can understand why you say the things you say or behave the way you behave or do the things you do. And the truth is what this requires of us is really two things. Number one, a sense of humility. Whether we like it or not, we sometimes think that we've got it all figured out. Right? I, I, I have such perfect clarity. I know exactly how fingers are supposed to go, how they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to unfold. And maybe we really do have clarity, but maybe we don't. Maybe we don't. You know, I'll share with you. I, I am not a, just, I, I, I'm not a very self-assured person. I always second guess. I always second guess decisions. And I'm always amazed by people who have like incredible self-assuredness and confidence that they know they're right. And what I've come to find often in life is that people who have too much self-assuredness or too much, too much inflated confidence are often not right <laughs> because the truth is they think they're right and they're unwilling simply to see any other vantage point or any other idea or to look out anyone else's window. Successful relationships require me to humble myself to recognize that I have not cornered the market on absolute truth. That just because I see the world and I see myself and I see the relationship in one way doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to see it. If I'm humble, I'm able to go ahead and say, you know what? I don't agree with you and I don't see things the way that you see it, but let me try to see things from your vantage point. You know, there's a story that's told about a young couple that got married and they're living in their first apartment and the, the wife is sitting in the living room and across from them, there's another apartment building, a neighbor not so far off. And this neighbor across the way, she does her laundry and she hangs it out on the fire escape. 
And so the, the chassan and Kala, the husband and wife, are sitting having coffee in the morning. And the wife says to her husband, I can't believe this neighbor. I can't believe this neighbor. Every single day, she hangs out her dirty laundry on the fire escape. What's the matter with her? She doesn't know how to do laundry. And every morning, this whole situation repeats itself. And the wife, this wife is upset. It's ruining her view. It's her first apartment. She's sitting in the living room. She has to look at the neighbor's dirty laundry. And the husband, good husband, he says, yes, I, I hear, I understand. It's so troubling. One morning, the wife gets up. She comes to the living room. And what happens? She sees Baruch Hashem. The neighbor's laundry is all clean. It's all clean. Her husband comes out. She says, honey, you're not going to believe it. Finally, finally, finally. The neighbor learned how to do laundry. Give out the incredible. So happy. Finally, she got it together. To which the husband says, my dear wife, the only thing that changed this morning is that I finally decided to clean our windows. You see, what happens in life is sometimes it's our window that's a little bit skewed. Sometimes there's some schmutz on my window. So I think I'm seeing the discord or the disrepair everywhere else, but maybe it's my window that needs a little bit of adjusting. Maybe it's my window that needs a little bit of cleaning. Maybe it's my life that needs a little bit of recalibration. So if we want to have successful relationships, we need to humble ourselves. We need to sometimes clean our own windows and we need to be able to strive to really understand where the other is coming from. To strive to understand the window through which they are seeing the world. You know, in Chazal, Chazal have an expression for this. They call it being yoreid lesof daito shal adam. Literally trying to understand. It literally means descending to the end of someone else's understanding. Really putting in the effort to try to understand where the other is coming from. That's number one. Number two. Number two. Sorry. Number two. There's a fascinating Gemara. A beautiful, beautiful Gemara. Gemara Meseches Bav Metziah Daf Nun Tesselman Allah. 15 in the Babylonian Talmud. Listen to this. There's a famous adage the rabbis say, Isisach Gutsa Gachin Vitilchoshla. Which literally means, if your wife is short, bend down to whisper to her. If your wife is short, bend down to whisper to her. And there is such profound wisdom embedded in that, in that adage. And what the rabbis are teaching us is as follows. That sometimes, sometimes in life, we create unrealistic expectations of our relationship partners. Sometimes again, and I see this, you know, as someone who often meets with many couples, whether it's newlyweds or couples who have married for a long time, you'd be surprised how often people just walk around with unrealistic expectations of what a husband is supposed to be, of what a wife is supposed to be. And what the rabbis are trying to teach us is, instead of going ahead, you see, if I'm tall and I have a short wife, there are two ways we could communicate. I could tell her, to get a step stool and step up and come talk to me. Let's face each other. But you, you know, you're, you're short. I'm tall. You stand up. Or I could bend down to her. And the rabbis are explaining to us, if you want successful relationships, meet your partner where he or she is. Don't expect people to come up to you. You go and reach them where they are. 
Make sure the expectations that we have of our spouses, of our friends, of our children, of our parents are realistic. You know, sometimes we don't even realize it because it often happens subconsciously is we create expectations of people that, first of all, they have no idea these expectations exist. And the truth is, they may be totally unrealistic, totally unrealistic. And then when my significant other, in whatever relationship this may be, doesn't reach that expectation, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. You don't love me. You don't care about me. Because if you did, you would measure up to this. Well, first of all, whoever communicated the expectations. And number two, whoever says the expectations are actually meaningful or appropriate. You know, instead of waiting for people to meet you where you want them to be, ultimately, go down and meet them where they are. And if you take the time, it's kind of like, it, it's, a, it's a sister concept to the window. The same way that I have to learn to see out of the window of the other, I also have to try to meet my significant other where they are. You know, Rosham Shunafal Hirsch says something amazing. He says, what's the difference between monotheism and idolatry? Fundamentally, there's monotheism and idolatry. And he says something so beautiful. He says, idolatry is you make God in your image. See, the way idolatry works is, I know what I want to do in life. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to be permitted, and I know what I'm okay being prohibited. So after I know what I want, I create a theology around me. Me, I make my God in my image. I decide what I want, and I create the God around that. What's Avodas Hashem? What's Yiddishkeit? What's Judaism? I make myself in God's image. You know, in relationships... This often happens as well. That at the end of the day, I want to make my spouse in my image. You know, I'm inspired. I like this. I want this. And so I want to make my, my spouse, I want to make you the way I need you to be. And that's not the way relationships work, you know, in the, in, in the, in the liturgy for the Amnuran, for the high holidays. We describe man as hinekachomer biyad hayotzer. We describe that I, in, when it comes to Hashem, Hashem... I am like clay in your hands. That works well from God to me. It doesn't work from husband to wife, nor does it work from wife to husband, from parents to children, from children to parents. We're not clay in each other's hands. Each of us is a beautiful image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Each of us is a beautiful Tzalem Elohim. A spark, a nitzutz, adri bono shal olam burns inside each of us. Stop making people come up to you. Don't create real expectations that are just never really possible to live up to. If your wife is short, bend down to her. Try to figure out and find the courage to meet your significant other where they are and stop being frustrated that perhaps they're not meeting the expectations you have created. Number three. And number three, and this is really what I think to be an incredibly profound idea comes out of a very strange source. The Torah says the following law. So we'll get a bit technical for just a few moments. The Torah says, We have to be holy. One of the ways that we're holy is we have to eat kosher. Okay? So the Torah says, therefore, if you find a trefa, what's a trefa? A trefa is an animal that has been torn apart by another animal. 
right? Say so you find a sheep that has been killed by a predatory animal, you can't eat it. Okay, no problem. First of all, I understand it. Sheep's not, right? animal's not kosher unless it's been right slaughtered by shechita, ritual slaughter. I, I, I got it. But then the Pasuk ends off and says something amazing. Lakelev tashlichunoso. Throw it to the dog. Throw it to the dog. So the commentaries are all bothered by this. Why have to me to throw it to the dog? I can do whatever I want with it. The only thing I can't do with it, I can't eat it. I can't eat it. But aside from that, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. So why does the Torah have to tell me to throw it to the dog? Why does Torah care? I can throw it to the dog. I can also give it to somebody who does right to a Gentile, doesn't have to eat kosher. I can do a whole bunch of things with it. I could sell it. I can do whatever I want. And the Dasa Kinim about the Tosafists in their commentary on Torah say something amazing. To get a little grammatical for just a moment. The, the Torah says, La Kelev. La Kelev translates as to the dog. Not to a dog, but to the dog. Who's the dog that you should give the trefa, the, the dead animal to, the carcass to? Listen to this. The Tosafists explain, give it to the sheep dog. Now, what's a sheep dog? Sheep dog is the dog who is in charge of watching the flock. And guarding the flock from predatory animals. So therefore the Torah says, if you have an animal in your flock that was killed by a predatory animal, you can't eat it, give it to the sheepdog. Let the sheepdog have a good dinner. Now, listen to, listen to what the Tosafists explain. Let's play this out. If you're a shepherd, and this is good to know in case any of you are ever thinking about contemplating a career change. And if you become a shepherd, right? The job of the sheepdog is a very simple job. Watch the flock. Guard the flock. From who? From predatory animals. Which means that if I have an animal in my flock that was killed by a predatory animal, who didn't do their job? The sheepdog. The sheepdog. The sheepdog failed. The sheepdog didn't do what it's supposed to do. And yet the Torah says that in that very moment when the sheepdog fails, what should you do? Give it a good dinner. Give it a good dinner. Let it have the carcass. Let, let it have the meat. Let, 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 it be, let it be satiated. Let it eat well. And the Dasikin and the Tosafis explain so beautifully. Because in that moment of failure is your opportunity to remember all of the times the sheepdog came through for you. He failed now. It's true. The sheepdog failed now. But what about all of the times he was there? What about all the scars he has from fighting off the predatory animals in years past? What about all the sleepless nights the sheepdog had because he was standing guard over the flock? What about all the cold he endured? What about all the privation he endured because he was a devoted and committed sheepdog? The commentaries explain in that moment of failure, remember all of the previous successes. Because the Tosafists are teaching us that it is human nature that when someone who we care about or someone who is attached to us fails, often failure obliterates all past successes. When you fail, all anyone remembers is your failure. And the Torah says that is not the right way to approach relationships. It's not the right way to approach relationships with your sheepdog. So in your moment that your sheepdog fails, you have to remember all of the past successes. And if it's not the way to approach my relationship with my sheepdog, all the more so it's not the right way to approach my marriage or to approach any other life relationship.
you know, I often say this and, and it sounds like a little bit morose, but I think it's unequivocally true. If there's one thing you could count on in every single human relationship, it's that people who we care about and rely on will fail us. You could count on it. And that's not being sour on relationships. That's just being true about humanity. We're frail. None of us are perfect. So if I acknowledge the fact that I'm imperfect, then by definition, I'm going to make a relationship mistake. It's only a shy. The only question is how many times will I make a mistake and how severe will the mistakes be? But I will always make mistakes. Failure is part and parcel of the fabric and dynamic of human relationships. Part and parcel of it. And so the Torah is trying to sensitize us. It's a question of how do you deal with failure in relationships? Do you allow the failure to become the dominant feature and eclipse all of the good? Eclipse everything. Everything was so good for years and years and years. Everything was great. Now there's a failure. And maybe it's a big failure. Maybe it's a significant failure. But does the failure obliterate everything that came before it? Or do I say no? In this moment of failure... I'm going to take the failure in context and I'm going to understand that for this one failure, there was also so much other good. Now, it's not to say that there aren't relationship failures that cause relationships to implode and relationships can't recover from that. I'm not not talking about that level of extreme relationship betrayal and failure and trespass. That's a different topic. Talking about just in the day in and day outs of relationship where people who we love and people who we care about disappoint us, don't come through for us, and maybe even fail in dramatic ways. Resist the temptation to characterize the relationship by the failure and ignore everything that came before it. Lakelev tashlichun also. When the sheepdog fails in that moment of failure, you go ahead and you reward it for all of the past good. In our relationships, when we experience failure, it is so important to take it in context and to remember all of the good that my relationship partner has given to me, has bestowed upon me, and has performed for me. Take the failure in stride. Take the failure in context. And finally, number four. Number four. And I think number four is a very simple one, but I think it's often overlooked. You know, a number of years ago, I saw a very moving... Um, interview with a Holocaust survivor by the name of Paula Lebovitz. And you could actually, you could, you could, you could look her up online. She's in the Holocaust Museum archives. Her, her testimony is there. And actually there was a beautiful article about her in the LA Times a little while ago as well, how she was partnering with certain youth in her area. And her story is, is, a, is an incredibly dramatic story. She was taken to Auschwitz, you know, as a child and she, liberation for her came at the age of 11. So 11-year-old girl. And she's shell-shocked from everything that has occurred. And she describes what happens because the Nazis, Yemachshon Bezichram, they left the camp before the Russians came. So there was this time where no one was in the camp. And she describes how the first thing they did is they ran towards the storehouses. And she describes as a child, all she wanted was bread. That's all she wanted. And she describes how I literally, I put bread everywhere. I put bread under my arm. I put bread between, wherever I could fit bread, I took bread. I just, I just wanted to have bread. And after bread, she went to get clothing, okay? A couple of days later, 
a couple of days later, the Russians come into the camp. And the truth is, she writes, you know, many people didn't have good interactions with the Russians when they came in. And she describes what happened, and it's so incredibly moving. She describes, and she remember she's 11 years old, but she said, I, I looked like I looked like a five-year-old. I looked, I was tiny, emaciated. She said, a Russian soldier came over to me and he picked me up in his arms and he cradled me. And she said, he just started crying and he rocked me back and forth trying to soothe me. And Prolevich, she says, I remember as an 11-year-old child thinking to myself, do you mean that there is still someone in this world who cares about me? She said, you know, I had lost everyone. I had no mother. I had no father. I had no grandparents. I had no siblings. I had nothing. And I was convinced as an 11-year-old child that there was no one left in this world who cared about me. And she said, when this Russian soldier came and I never, I don't know his name, I don't know who he is, but he showed care for me. She said, in that moment I knew as an 11 year old child that I had a future. And I think when it comes to our life relationships, you know, we, we're, people are complex and relationships are complex. And especially, you know, sometimes in relationships, you have people who have big differences, right? People, you, you could be in a committed relationship and you could be worlds apart from the person who you're married to, or the person you're in a friendship with, or even parents and children, children and parents. But it's such an important thing in creating meaningful relationships is that the person who you're in a relationship with knows that you care. And I care about my significant others, even if we're on different religious levels, and even if we're on different journeys, and even if we have different political views, which could fracture relationships today, and even if we have different life outlooks, and even different aspirations, and different goals, and different dreams. But I care. And all of us know, because if you're in a relationship with someone who genuinely cares about you, genuinely cares about you, not someone who's in a relationship with you for utilitarian purposes, someone who genuinely cares about you, there is no greater treasure in the world. There is no greater gift that a person could have in this world than knowing that someone cares about me. And that if I'm in pain, that person is going to care. And if I'm hurting, that person is going to be hurting too. Sometimes we make relationships so complicated but what really makes good relationships good and what really makes, gosh, what really makes good relationships better and better relationships great is when two people know that they truly and profoundly care for one another. Are there differences? No two people are alike. No two people are alike. No two people are alike religiously. No two people are alike spiritually. No two people are alike intellectually. There may be a lot of commonality but you could have deep and profound care even across a sea of differences. So if we take these four ideas in mind, four simple ideas, and by the way, I wanna be clear, in no way are these four ideas the totality of what it takes to forge and to create meaningful life relationships, but I think they're a good start. Number one, learn to see outside of the window of the other. Number two, if you're tall, 
bend down to the person who is short. Try to meet your loved one where they are instead of always expecting them to come to you. Number three, never define a relationship by the current failure, but always look at it in the totality, which includes beautiful moments of success. And number four, be the kind of person who genuinely cares for those with whom you are in a relationship with. And I'll end off, I'll end off with a beautiful idea by the Baba Rebbe. The Baba Rebbe, Shlomo Halberstam, of blessed memory, Zechit Sadeh of Kalash of Rachel, who lived from 1908 to 2000. The Baba Rebbe, there's so much to talk about. He also suffered terribly in life, yet found the incredible courage to rebuild. He says something amazing. He's speaking on Tu Bishvat. And he says, you know, Tu Bishvat, like we said before, it's the renewal of the trees. He says, you know, there's something interesting about a sapling versus an old tree. He says, a sapling, and you'll know this, have you ever planted a tree on your property? Right? So you plant a tree and they do something amazing. You plant a new tree, what you do is you tie, you tie something to it and you anchor it. You anchor it against it because you want it to grow straight. And if you begin to see that the tree is growing a little bit crooked in one direction, you tie it again and you pull it back towards the other way. Says the Rebbe, a sapling is malleable. A sapling could be moved. You know, once that tree grows and once it has that thick trunk and once it's a couple of years old and it's decided which direction it's going in, no matter how many ropes you tie to it, you cannot change the tsura. You cannot change the form of the tree. And the Baba Rebbe says something so beautiful. Do you know what the power of the month of Shvat is? The power of the month of Shvat, the power of Tu Bishvat is that every tree is a sapling. Every tree is starting from scratch. My tree is just beginning to flourish. You see, I thought I'm 45 years old. I thought that I'm already an established tree. I'm already set in my ways. It's not true. Comes to Bishvat, and as nature begins to renew, I begin to renew. Kia Adam eats Hasad, the man is a tree of the field. My sapling is just being planted. It's planted now and it's growing which means that I have the incredible opportunity now to decide which direction I want to shape that sapling in. Past performance need not be an indicator of future performance. What was, was. What can be is up to me. I have a sapling and I could choose to tilt it or to shape it in any way I want. And the same way, that I have the choice to decide which way to kind of plant and which way to shape and which direction I want my personal sapling to go. It's the same thing in our relationships. Sometimes we think that since we've been in certain relationships for such a long time, they are what they are. The dynamic is what it is. And there's no real way to change it. And there's nothing further from the truth because each of us is but a tree and in this time of year, each of us is but a sapling. And every sapling could change the course of its own growth. So we should be Zoha, we should be privileged in Hashem, to tap into this time. First of all, I give all of you such an incredible amount of credit of taking a couple of days away from life. I mean, it is Florida, so Baruch Hashem, I guess it's not that hard of a challenge. But to take a couple of days out of what I'm sure are very busy schedules to work on personal growth, because that's incredible. 
That's incredible. In the manic pace of life today, to see a group of righteous women who are taking time out to literally just work on themselves. I want to tell you, even though I can't be there with you, I'm inspired by you. I'm inspired by you because it inspires me to also realize I have to take time out for my personal growth as well. In the merit of these days that you have taken on your spiritual growth, HaKadosh Baruch Hu should give all of you and should give all of us the strength to take our newfound personalistic sampling and decide which way we want to grow. What direction do I want to take? Which kivun? Where do I want to go? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to start doing? What do I want to stop doing? What do I want to be better at? And what do I want to become great at? Because should give us that strength. But along with nurturing and nourishing our newfound personalistic sapling, Hashem should also give us the strength to put in the requisite time and requisite effort and requisite koach into creating beautiful and meaningful and sustainable relationships. We shouldn't only work on our own trees, but we should work together with the trees with whom we live, with the trees with whom we interact, and allow this month of Shvat and this Tu B'Shvat to be a time of renewal for ourselves and for all of our life relationships. Thank you so very much for allowing me to share some words of Torah with you today. I am so sorry that I cannot be there with you in person, but Amir Tzashem Shabizocha to learn with all of you next year in a rebuilt Yerushalayim here Rabbi Amenu. Amen. Take it off, wait. Speak of your trouble, teach me.